Good morning, Real Town. My name is Demetrius Hunter, and uh, I'm excited to be here with y'all today. Just a little bit about myself. Uh, I am a church planner, and currently me and my wife uh, are working at Planning Christ Our Hope uh, Community Church in Flint, Michigan. Uh, it's been uh, something we've been working on for quite some time. Uh, I'm an Acts 29 candidate, and we are looking forward to preaching the gospel, making disciples in Flint, Michigan. Uh, most of the time when you hear about Flint, it's probably some negative, um, and a lot of that is true, unfortunately. Um, Flint is a place where people uh, oftentimes choose to leave, uh, but God has called us to stay uh, in the area and plant a church in Flint uh, to preach the gospel. So we have a lot of hope, uh, hence the name Christ Our Hope, because despite the negativity, we know where the gospel prevails, the powers of darkness uh, will never win. Uh, so uh, we're just excited about what we're trying to do. If any of you are interested in hearing more about what we're doing uh, at Christ Our Hope, please just grab me. I'm a friendly guy. I like to smile. I like to talk. And I would be more than excited to tell you about uh, what we have going on uh, at the church. Uh, but it's, it's uh, truly a joy for me to be here today. And uh, I, I really appreciate the uh, invitation and opportunity. Uh, so let me just pray right quick, and I want to get into the message. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I just pray that your word would be uh, uh, bring quickening to our heart, that the Holy Spirit would work, and that we all can know and understand how through the power of the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ, you make our faith brand new. So I just thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you can recall the passage, uh, uh, Mark 2, 18 through 22, as we just read, I, I want you to think about what comes to mind when uh, uh, you think about a classic. Now, being in real town, I'm pretty sure this is uh, pretty apparent. Uh, you may think about a classic car. Some people may think about literature or a great book or movie or song. And speaking about uh, classic cars, I've been trying for years to convince my kids that my Buick Lucerne is a classic. <laughs> but they say, no, dad, your Buick is just old and old people drive it. <laughs> I, I, I'll bring them around one day. But I think the gist of the matter is, for all of us, we have an affinity for classics. Some of us love all things old and spurn everything new. For example, I'm a child of the 90s. Now, yes, yes, I got some 90s folk back there. Now, I wasn't born in the 90s, and if that's what you were thinking, I do thank you for the compliment. But anyone who came of age in the 90s will tell you, and it's true, that was the golden age of hip hop. So we tend to compare all new variations of hip hop to what we think is the best. We don't care too much for a mumble rap. We just like authentic hip hop where you can understand what the artist is actually saying. And there's more craft in how the verses are assembled, if that makes sense. 
And I swear, y'all, it's the, 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 the older I get, the more I start to sound like my parents. Because what did all y'all parents used to tell us? They don't make music like they used to. They say, we actually had bands and people who could sing. I think in every generation, there appears to be a struggle between the old that we recognize as good versus the new that's innovative and appears to take more liberty with the art forms that we like. Sometimes there are improvements, sometimes there's not, hence mumble rap. <laughs> now, I, I made those previous examples to highlight a similar phenomenon in this passage. We have the Pharisees and John's disciples who are questioning Jesus. Why are they questioning them? It's because he didn't follow the traditions. He didn't appeal to the way, to the old way of doing things. Now, of course, y'all, this, this passage is much more complicated than, say, the Pharisees preferred a Gregorian chant while Jesus preferred turntables. Although he did turn some tables, some of y'all will get that later. But Jesus here was teaching them his views and trying to replace their old ways of thinking with a new one. And I want to use this passage of scripture to talk about that. When I was studying uh, to put together after reading this passage several times, it almost seemed to me that Mark kind of set this story up right here as a prelude or intro into several ways that Jesus was about to work to change everything. So with this passage as my base, I'm going to uh, uh, kind of soar over this text and go to the end of chapter three to demonstrate the revolutionary way Jesus was about to change everything these people had ever seen or known about God. Now, set in the context, Mark has pointed out several miraculous things Jesus has done. He's healed people from various diseases, including leprosy. He's cast out demons. And even in a tongue-in-cheek way, he told the Pharisees that he was God. The consensus of the people was that they had never seen anything like this in their lives. And this is evidenced by Mark in several instances in the first two chapters. Mark says in Mark 1.22, they were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority, not like the scribes. Mark 1.27 says they were all amazed, and so they began to ask each other, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Mark 2.12 says, immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So when we get to this portion where Jesus essentially gives a 20-20 vision on the expectations of his ministry. And he does this because, you know, they, they was thinking, if this guy is as holy as he says he is, he will be keeping the traditions of the elders in fasting. Now, most commentaries say that while the law only required one day of fasting, which was the Day of Atonement, the Pharisees instituted ritual fastings that took place twice a week. Now, in talking about John's disciples, y'all, John was totally out of the box, but he practiced fasting religiously. And he taught his disciples to do the same. I mean, when you think about John, he had a, a diet of locusts and wild honey. The brother wasn't eating a whole lot. 
at least he wasn't eating extravagantly anyway. That was just John's vibe. But they also thought that Jesus wouldn't be hanging out with sinners because they wouldn't hang out with sinners. And here we have Jesus eating, drinking, and partying with a tax collector and all these other quote-unquote degenerates. Now, to say that Jesus' behavior offended them is putting it really lightly. But verses 19 and 20 clue us in on a couple of things. Jesus takes occasion and asks them a rhetorical question. He says in verse 19, the wedding guests cannot fast as long as they have the bridegroom with them, can they? He then says, as long as the groom is with them, they cannot fast. Now, some speculate that he said this because John the Baptist called him the bridegroom, as is written in John 3.29. It says this, he who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy, is mine, so this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John's disciples would have recalled John saying that about Jesus. But Jesus speaks this way because in their culture, a wedding lasted a week and it was a huge celebration. There was feasting and drinking and dancing. It wasn't a time to be sad and not participate in the activities because of fasting. And Jesus himself in this instance, in this moment, is God walking with his creation. Why would they fast? when they should be sharing in his joy. We used to sing a song a long time ago, and the chorus said, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we will shout and sing the victory. Now, I wasn't going to sing that because it would be more shouting. <laughs> and of course, y'all wouldn't think it was any victory after I got done. But there, there won't be a sad eye at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be a joyous occasion. There's going to be no need to fast, but we will feast and celebrate with our Lord. In verse 20, Jesus said there will be a time to fast, and that is when the bridegroom, speaking of himself, will be taken away. Now this points towards the cross, because for the disciples, the bridegroom would be taken away, and then there would be a time to fast. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus drops clues about this that point to his death. And it's also because of his sacrifice that we'll all get to celebrate when we get to see him. The bridegroom gave himself for his bride so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be with him forever in glory and great joy. When Jesus is with us, y'all, his, his joy becomes our strength. There'll be no more need to fast in order to draw near to him. Next, in verses 21 through 22, Jesus transitions into parable mode, challenging the Pharisees and even John's disciples about the peril of trying to mix Jesus's new way of spirituality with their traditional practices. You see, Jesus came to show humanity what true worship was. And Israel could never get it. And God had always planned that he would come down and demonstrate his ways to us himself. 
with the Israelites, for example, their old way of thinking would say that Matthew, as a tax collector for Rome, was unworthy of fellowship because he was a public disgrace. They wouldn't even let tax collectors come into the temple. The Israelites considered them traitors, and it was regarded as shameful to be a tax collector. And now here we have Jesus celebrating with a tax collector and various other people whom the Pharisees deemed as untouchable. They practically thought about tax collectors and other sinners like lepers. But Jesus welcomes those who are rejected. And this invitation is open to all, not just to those who appear to be righteous. For them, this was a new way of thinking. The commentary I use says this. An attempt to bind the newness of the gospel to the old religion of Judaism is as futile as trying to patch an old garment with a new unshrunk piece of cloth. When a new piece becomes wet, it will shrink, pull away from the old, and make a larger hole. It is equally disastrous to pour new, not fully fermented wine in old wineskins. Inevitably, as the new wine ferments or expands, it will burst. The skins in both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. Salvation available through Jesus was not to be mixed with the old Judaistic system. For all who had ears to hear, Jesus was giving strong indication that the old ways were passing away and he was about to make everything new. To some, Jesus was saying, get rid of your old ways of practicing religion and follow me. He was saying, get rid of your old ways of devaluing people and follow me. Get rid of your old ways and turning people away from the kingdom and follow me. To others, he is saying, I know you have never been accepted, but I want you to follow me. I know your sins. I know your unrighteousness. I know all the bad and evil you could have ever done, but I came to call you to repentance so that you can follow me. I died for your sins so you could follow me. Now Mark lays out this exchange and immediately lists several areas in which Jesus was blazing a trail across the spiritual landscape. As I move on, The next thing Jesus did or or Mark highlights was how Jesus offered a new perspective on the Sabbath. In verses uh, in Mark 2, 23 through 36, I'm going to summarize this, but there were two instances where Jesus disrupted the Pharisees idea of what keeping the Sabbath means. First, he and the disciples were walking through a grain field and the disciples were picking some heads of grain to eat. Now, picking uh, uh, food off of someone's crops like this was totally permissible. It was like a a social safety net. If you read the book of Ruth, it gives a very good description of this practice. But the Pharisees forbade doing this on the Sabbath. Even though the disciples were hungry, the Pharisees would still forbid them to do what was right or necessary to feed themselves. Now, you have to wonder, what was they doing there in the first place? Mark doesn't tell us, but Jesus nevertheless instinctively tells them how David ate the showbread in the temple, which was holy when he and his man were hungry. 
He makes it a point to say that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, and it was made for man and not man for it. The Sabbath, although instituted to worship God and rest, it was not meant to be a burden. We all enjoy our beds, right? I think I should get a hearty amen. Some of us wanted to stay in the bed this morning. <laughs> but if you can't get out the bed to meet the other needs in your life, soon that bed can start to feel like a prison. Why do you think your kids don't like to take naps? They don't like the bed like that. But we see how Jesus institutes a new way of thinking about this. We're not in bondage to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us to worship God and get the rest that we need and trust in him. Next, there is a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath with a shriveled hand. And when you look at the text in chapter 3, verse 2, it says again, they were watching closely to see if he, would, uh, uh, if, if he would heal the blind man on the Sabbath. Now, they was always watching Jesus. If this was our day and age, the Pharisees would have been lurking on Jesus' timeline. <laughs> always trying to see what he's doing with nothing good to say about it. And even thinking about this situation, y'all, how foul do you have to be to not even want somebody to be healed on the Sabbath? Accordingly, Jesus asked them in verse 4, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? He knew what they thought, so he told the man to stretch out his hand. Everyone saw that the man was healed, and this enraged the Pharisees, so much so that they started to plot to kill him. I guess that answered Jesus' question. Because for them, violating the Sabbath, even to do good, was worthy of death. But Jesus' perspective put the needs of the people above a strict adherence to overzealous man-made traditions. This also made Jesus angry because in Matthew 12, it's recorded uh, uh, that Jesus said to them, Which one of you, if you had a sheep that fell into the ditch on the Sabbath, would not get it out? Then he says, how much more is a man better than a sheep? Y'all, the Pharisees valued their animals more than they valued people. And my God, we are guilty of doing the same thing. American history is a great example of how animals have been valued over people. Jesus was here to correct this erroneous way of thinking and to provide the proper interpretation. This, this was a new way to them because they had no clue about the heart of God who they claimed to serve. Next, Jesus offered a new perspective on the power of God. In chapter 3, 7 through 12 and verses 20 through 30, it deals with the power of Jesus from different aspects. Jesus possessed the spirit of God without measure. Being God, he has dominion over the entirety of the universe, all things seen and unseen. Those who exercised faith knew that Jesus could say the word and anything could be done. The power of God was on full display and demons trembled at the feet of Jesus. 
We see how Jesus used his power to do good and heal those who are oppressed by the devil. Acts uh, 10.38 talks about that. But Jesus overcame the forces of darkness. And when the Pharisees accused him of being in league with Satan to do all of these things, Jesus told them, I do this because I am the one who has bound the strong man and plundered his house. Jesus said the kingdom of God is here. This was like a matrix flex, y'all. Y'all remember when Neo understood the power that he had in the matrix and he flexed and the whole screen bent? This is, this is like what Jesus is doing right here. Y'all, Jesus, in all actuality, we, we, we like to think of Jesus as the lamb, but Jesus was the aggressor. And he made it known that the powers of darkness were subject to him. As stated in Mark chapter 1, the people were amazed with the power and authority that Jesus displayed. Colossians 2, 9 through 10 says this, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, our King. Next, Jesus offered a new perspective on being a disciple. Mark 3 Uh, 13 through 15 says this. Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12 whom he also named apostles to be with him to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Jesus called the 12 apostles to assist them in the work of the ministry. Y'all everywhere Jesus went, it was pandemonium. If you now I'm aging myself. But if y'all recall when Michael Jackson went anywhere, how people would be fainting and falling out and filling up the streets, y'all, Michael Jackson ain't had nothing on Jesus. This, you, you think, when you think about him appointing the disciples, you, you, you want to say, okay, what's so different about this? The first thing is, uh, 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 Tony, Tony, uh, Powell pointed out last week, I listened to his message at the West Side venue. He pointed out uh, uh, that Jesus chose his disciples. They did not choose him. That was unique because in their day, aspiring disciples sought out their teacher. It wasn't the other way around. And this is an indicator of how God works. Y'all, God is always the initiator. Next thing is, Jesus brought together this group of people who, under normal circumstances, would oppose one another. We could tend to skip over the background of the disciples, but they were from different areas, different occupations, and they had different ideologies. Now, this is a little bit of hyperbole, so allow me some space. But, y'all, essentially, Jesus calling the disciples was like him calling Republicans and Democrats, Black Lives Matter, Libertarians, Antifa, Oath Keepers, and throw in Bernie Madoff. (laughs) He called all these people to follow him. All these people had all their own ideas of what the coming kingdom should look like. But Jesus was going to teach them a different way. He was going to teach them his way. And he would get all these people on message. And that message was the gospel of the kingdom. 
And you know what? I'm hopeful. Because despite all the division that we see on our social media feeds today, y'all, Jesus is still doing this. Lastly, in verses 31 through 35, Jesus offers a new perspective on relationships. Mark 3, 31 through 35 says this. His mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your mother, your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in the circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother, sister and mother. Now, notwithstanding, if you know that passage just a few verses ago, his family said that he was out of his mind. Now, that'll definitely give you a new perspective on relationships for sure. But Jesus established that in the kingdom, family became more than your blood relatives. Family become, becomes those who do the will of God. And this was quite a thought. Considering the nature of family and the sheer importance that family had uh, when you think about the general well-being of everybody during those times. Under the blood of the cross, we who believe have been adopted and accepted into God's family. This is the family that we will spend eternity with. And no doubt. There will be some of our blood relatives there, but there will also be many others. And our sole bond will be Jesus Christ. As an aside, um, right now there's a lot of heinous abuse and trauma that's been inflicted uh, within the church, and it's rightly being exposed and addressed. But along with that, there's also a lot of talk from social media philosophers about how we should jettison or get rid of using the language of family. But it's a biblical language. I think we can faithfully address the problem without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. However, y'all, regardless of what we see, in Christ, we have a supernatural relationship and fellowship with one another as we worship God, commune with the Holy Spirit, and walk in the light. Y'all, who, who could set the world on such a different course other than Jesus Christ? As I close, there's several things I I uh, uh, want us all to consider from this passage. First thing is, have we come to realize the newness of life provided in Christ? Y'all, Christ provides a new way of living and being that's totally foreign to what many associate as true life. The next thing is, are we trying to hold on to ways that are not compatible with the kingdom of God? Y'all, we, we, we can't combine the teaching of Jesus with anything else. 
As I stated earlier in the text, Jesus pretty much says it's a sure recipe for disaster. And lastly, what areas in your life is Jesus seeking to introduce a revolutionary display of his power? Is it freedom from tradition or sin? Is it a call to follow him as a dedicated disciple? Is it a call to walk in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ despite your differences? Or is it a call to allow him to wipe away your sin and the tears you've shed because you've never felt seen by God or his people? Now, the gospel is our invitation to union with Jesus. When we accept him as our savior, when we believe that because of his sacrifice, our sins are forgiven, we then await the day that Jesus, the bridegroom, will return for his bride and there will be gladness and great joy. Revelations 21, 3 through 5 says this. I'm going to close with this passage. It says, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling place is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Looking at verse five, especially, it says, then the one seated on the throne says, look, I am making everything new. This passage was a prelude to Jesus's promise that he is going to fulfill. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your encouragement. I thank you for the hope that you give us in Jesus Christ. And I just pray, Lord, that uh, your spirit would work on our hearts, that you would bring godly conviction, that we could boldly come to your throne of grace as the power uh, of your blood and the cross of Christ makes it so. I pray that you would exalt yourselves as the king of our hearts. And may we forward the kingdom, Lord, as you work within us. In Jesus' name, amen.